Why can't God just look down at the sinner and say, oh, in response to your sorriness and brokenness of heart, I just forgive you and not send his son to die? Well, God would topple from his throne of holiness if he had done that. It would be like a, a judge letting a guilty criminal go free with no basis for releasing him. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in one of the most important passages, not only in our study of the book of Romans, but in the whole Bible. We find ourselves in Romans 3.24, which reads, Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So far, we have seen the source of our justification, that of God and His grace. Today, we'll look at the grounds for our justification, Jesus Christ and His cross. Would you take the Word of God, please, this morning and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 3. As we continue our verse-by-verse study of Romans, we are in that paragraph of the epistle to the Romans that John Calvin called the heart and soul of the whole epistle. And I suppose there is no other single paragraph in all of the Word of God that has helped me more in communicating my faith than this passage that we're in. There's no other passage in all the Word of God that has helped me to understand more fully the power of the cross. The cross is central to Christianity. Paul, who wrote this book, said, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who believe, to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's foolishness to some. And so Paul said he preached the word of the cross, and that's what God has called you to preach. You say, I'm not a pastor like you. You may not be, but you're a preacher. And we're going to see Paul, when we come to the 10th chapter, use the word in a very generic sense, applying it to all believers, that every Christian is called to be a preacher. Every Christian is to proclaim the word of the cross. Paul said, for I am determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, when he said that, he did not mean that the only thing he ever spoke about was the cross. You read any of his letters, and that's apparent. But he kept coming back to the cross. Paul could not preach a single message without coming back to the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you understand this passage that we are examining in these weeks together, your view of the cross will expand, your relationship with God will deepen, and your ability to tell others will grow. Romans chapter 3 Last week, we just looked at the first half of verse 24. Today, we're going to look at verses 24 through 26, but I want us to read the entire paragraph. We're going to begin in verse 21 to give us a running start. Paul writes, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. So that he would be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain 
that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, I noted for you last time that this paragraph of Scripture is like a well-outlined sermon. There's an introduction, there are three major points, there's a conclusion and an application. We've been studying his introduction in verses 21 through 23, and it's there that Paul reminds us that if we're going to go to heaven and have a relationship with God in this life, we need the righteousness of God. He told us in verse 21, you cannot achieve that by anything you do. He said, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. God's righteousness, the holiness that you need to have this relationship with him is apart from the law. It's apart from your keeping the Ten Commandments, the Golden Rule, or anything else you can achieve. God's righteousness is not earned. It is indeed a reward. You don't dig deep into your pocket and say, Lord, here, here's my righteousness. Look what I've done. Now, God would say that your righteousness, like mine, is as a filthy rag. That the kind of righteousness you need is the kind that he alone possesses, but he wants to give to you as a gift. And so the message all the way through the scripture is that our sin, our iniquities, has created a separation between us and our God, and there's nothing that man can do to bridge it. The righteousness from God is apart from the law. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. And why was the law given? He tells us, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God never gave the law to save you. He gave the law to reveal you. I told you before, God's law is like looking in a mirror. When you look in a mirror, you see your face is dirty. When you look into the Bible, you see your soul is dirty. One reveals the outside, the other reveals the inside. Again here in this verse, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. The Holman Christian Standard Version says it's been revealed. The NIV 84 says it's been made known. How so? Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Paul is saying the law and the prophets, what today we call the Old Testament, reveals and bears witness to the truth that man has never been saved on the basis of works, but always on the basis of grace. So we read in verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He already stated in his introduction our need for faith in Christ when he quoted the law and the prophets, the prophet Habakkuk in Romans 1.16. When we come to Romans 4, he'll illustrate our need to be saved by grace through faith when we look at Abraham and David. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. And we saw that phrase last time, for there is no distinction, is the main thought behind verse 23. And so we need to bring both clauses together, for there is no distinction. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter if you're the pagan of chapter 1, the moralizer of chapter 2, the religious Jew of chapter 3. It doesn't matter if you are an African or an Asian, a European or an Indian. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile, religious or non-religious. It doesn't matter what you are or who you've been, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now that's his introduction. Then he gives us three major points. The first point is found in the first half of verse 24 that we studied last time. It speaks to the source of our justification. And the rest of verses, verse 24 and in verse 25 and 26, he'll give us the ground of our justification. 
And then, Lord willing, next week we'll look at the means to our justification. All right? And then he'll apply it to our lives. Now, we've thought about the source of our justification. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, notice, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now, in this paragraph of Scripture, there are many very important words. Justified, redemption, propitiation, demonstration. We'll come to the next chapter, the word reconciliation. And the temptation for you to think is that words like that are just for theologians and pastors, but not for me, an ordinary Christian. Well, you're not an ordinary Christian. You have the same status as a missionary or a pastor. We're all saints by calling. And the devil would try to convince you that you can't understand these things. I'm not saying they're easy to understand. There are some disciplines that require work and discipline and fortitude. And so the proverb speaks about a man who looks for truth like one would look for gold or silver. There needs to be a determination on your part to be willing to search the scriptures to see what they say. But you can understand these truths. And if you don't, you'll never grow up. And your ability to be used by God will be significantly reduced. I suppose we are living in an unprecedented time since the time of the Protestant Reformation where so many Christians are ignorant of so many basic truths of the faith. And I believe, among other things, the devil wants to keep us weak. He wants to keep us babes in Christ because if you start growing and maturing and become a vessel that God can use to communicate the power of the cross, you become a threat to Satan's kingdom. You become usable in the hand of God to deliver people out of one kingdom into another. And he doesn't want that. Not to mention the Bible tells us that the devil is preparing a generation of folks for the apostasy. Not just apostasy, but the apostasy. It's articular. There's coming a day where there will be a whole generation of people who say they are saved, who say they are Christians, who say they are born again. But it's only on the outside, it's not genuine on the inside, it's in the head, it's not in the heart. And when the Antichrist comes, they're going to give their allegiance to him because they've never truly been saved. Not to mention the cults love to prey on uninformed believers, and they want to knock you off center, and they are tools in the hands of the evil one. And forget that, think about your own children. Very often because parents don't grow up and mature, then the words of Chad Walsh that he wrote in the 1950s comes true. You only inoculate your children with a mild case of Christianity and you keep them from getting the real disease. So the first term we looked at was the term justified. We saw that there were three important aspects for our understanding. Number one, it was an act of God. It's not a process, it is an act. And we're not to confuse justification with sanctification. Sanctification is that process by which God makes you more and more like Christ. Justification is when God declares you to be righteous. There's no degrees of justification. There's degrees of sanctification. We call it maturity. But there's no degrees of justification. That's why in the New Testament, every Christian, even the weakest and the poorest, are declared saints in the sight of God. And so justification is an act. It is not a process. And it's an act of God. It's not something that you do. It's something that He does. You cannot justify yourself. It is God who declares us righteous. He does not make us righteous. Again, that's sanctification. 
In justification, he declares us righteous. And we saw that it certainly does not mean just as if I had never sinned. That is a pardon. And a pardon is far different from justification. A pardon is when you are relieved from the consequences of your actions. And while, of course, a judge may pardon you, he cannot forgive you because no one can forgive sin but God alone. So you can be pardoned but not be forgiven. And the corollary is true. You can be forgiven and not be pardoned. Some Christians have been forgiven. Some people have met God in prison, but they have to face the consequences of what they have done. So it's not simply pardon, and certainly it doesn't mean just being forgiven. Now, we saw last time that our Roman Catholic friends blend together justification and sanctification. And they argue that justification is partially earned by the things that they do. That's a huge error. Well, it's equally wrong by those sloppy evangelicals who de-emphasize that a fruit of justification is works. In Roman Catholicism, they make works a means to being declared righteous. So it's not an act, it is a process. But in biblical theology, it is an act, but indeed works are the fruit of justification. So again, we need to distinguish between justification and act, sanctification, a process, and glorification where God brings the two together in both in my experience and in my position, they come together. Now, the voice of pardon says, you may go. I do not hold the consequences of your action against you. The voice of forgiveness says, I wipe the slate clean. But the voice of justification says, I not only wipe the slate clean, I declare you righteous in my sight. You are holy before me. I pronounce you righteous. So it does not mean just as if I had never sinned. It better would be said just as if I had always obeyed. It's not simply the remission of punishment, but rather it is indeed a declaration that you are holy in God's sight. And so, biblically, justification is not a process. It is an act of God. And notice, in addition, it is by the grace of God. It is, a, first, as a gift. He, that's the second thing. It is as a gift. Being justified, he says, as a gift. Um, the King James says, being justified freely, as does the predecessor to the New American Standard, the ASV of 1901, from which we have the New American Standard. It says, being justified freely. We saw that literally it says being justified without a cause. The Greek word is dorian. Jesus uses it in John 15 when he says, they hated me dorian. That is without a cause. People hated me when they had absolutely no basis for hating me. And so we could read this verse, being justified without a cause. There was no cause in you that made God justify or declare you righteous in his sight. There was not a blessed thing in us. The only thing that we had to offer God was the raw sewage of our sin. But God in his mercy through Christ, when you come in faith, declares you righteous. And it's a liberating truth when you really understand it. And we noted too that it says being justified. It is a present passive participle in Greek. The present tense in the Bible refers not just to the time of time, but the kind of kind, time. It's an ongoing, 
process that never stops. Being continually, habitually, eternally justified. And it's in the passive voice. It carries the idea that the subject, namely us, are being acted upon by God. This is something that God does that we do not do to ourselves. So we saw it was an act of God. It is the gift of God. It's given freely. And it's on the basis of the grace of God. So Paul tells us not only do we have nothing to do with it, he then gives us the motivation for God moving upon us. And so the, the acrostic G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense, is indeed a good definition of grace. Now I know the concept of being saved by grace, apart from any good deeds, scares some people. And it scared the religious leaders in Luther's day, and so the Council of Trent. And they said that anyone who taught that salvation was not partially earned by good deeds, that person is to be accursed. And people tend to go to one of two extremes. They either say you're saved by works or at least partially by works. That's one extreme. The other extreme is they make the mistake of what we call antinomianism. Anti is the Greek word that means against. It comes directly into our English language. Nomos is the word for law. So antinomianism are those who are against the law. Those people who say I'm saved and because I'm saved it doesn't matter how I live. Because I'm guaranteed heaven if I want to live like the devil I can because I'm going to heaven. And Paul is going to argue before we're done with the fifth chapter and on into the sixth chapter that people who think that way are lost. That they have a distorted view of the grace of God. And so the grace of God produces good deeds. Salvation is not based on them but is indeed the fruit of them. Now that was the source of our justification. That's by way of review. Today, we want to delve into the ground of our justification. The source of our justification is God and his grace. The ground of our justification is Jesus Christ and his cross. Without the cross, justification is impossible. Now, there's some important words in the text that we're going to look at today. You might want to underline them. The word redemption in verse 24. The word propitiation in verse 25. And then again, the word demonstration in verse 26. Associated with Christ's death on the cross was a redemption, a propitiation, and a demonstration. Now, what do these words mean? Why can't God just look down at the sinner and say, Oh, in response to your sorriness and brokenness of heart, I just forgive you and not send his son to die. Well, God would topple from his throne of holiness if he had done that. It would be like a, a judge letting a guilty criminal go free with no basis for releasing him. No, God is just, and he has to have a basis by which he can forgive us. And so these three key words form our outline this morning. First, I want you to see how God redeemed us through the cross. How God redeemed us through the cross. Again, in verse 24, we're told, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And there are three truths around this word redemption that I hope we will walk away with. First, the meaning of redemption. What does the word redemption mean? Well, it just means payment by a price. A synonym in English might be a ransom. Someone kidnaps your child and they say, for $200,000 you can have your child back. That's the redemptive price. That's the ransom. 
And the Greek word is barred from the commercial market of the day. Just like the word justification was a legal term barred from the first century courtroom, the word uh, redemption was a commercial term bought from the marketplace. Now remember, we forget this sometimes, but during the time that the New Testament was being written, the highest percentage of people alive in the Roman Empire were slaves. There were 60 million slaves when the New Testament was being written. Now that's important to understand. When Rome came in and they conquered a people, they didn't imprison them, but they subjugated them through the process of slavery. And if you were a Roman citizen, you would often be assigned a slave. That's why in the New Testament letters, you can have a Christian who's a master of a slave. And you can have a, a slave who has a Christian master. And so the exhortations on how they were to treat one another. And slaves really encompassed people of every profession. They didn't simply do menial tasks. There were some who were doctors and surgeons and, and lawyers and all kinds of things that you can imagine. And so with 60 million people, some were assigned, other slaves were inherited, others could be acquired where you went into the marketplace and you bought yourself a slave. You could redeem a slave. And it's in that sense that we're going to think about this word redemption this morning. So that's the word or the meaning of redemption, to, to purchase with the pain of a price. Secondly, I want us to think about the means of redemption, the means. How did God redeem us? What was the price paid? Well, let me quote the Apostle Peter. He says, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And so now God holds us totally accountable to the one who purchased us with his own blood. And for you to become a Christian, you have to acknowledge that there's no other basis for which God can save you and buy you apart from the blood of Christ. Suppose, uh, suppose Michael over here comes to me and says, Pastor, I, I want to give you a brand new Lincoln Continental. I just appreciate you so much. I want you to have a brand new Lincoln. I said, no, I, I couldn't accept such an expensive gift. No, pastor, I, I want you to have this brand new Lincoln. I really want you to do that. And he gives me a brand new Lincoln. I say, Michael, by the way, uh, what, what do you pay for that car? Kind of being brash. And Michael says, well, I, I bought you a car with all the bells and whistles. I paid $40,000 for that Lincoln. I said, well, Michael, let me help you pay for that, Lincoln. I don't feel righteous accepting it. And uh, I reach down into my pocket and I pull out a quarter and I said, here, take this. And I mean, he's just utterly insulted. And you see me driving around my brand new Lincoln. You say, hey, Pastor, nice car. Where'd you get it? Oh, well, Michael and I bought it. Now, can you imagine such a statement? He paid $39,999.75, and I gave my two bits. I said, look what Michael and I did. That's what we do when we bring our deeds to God Almighty. God shed his precious blood. He redeemed us. He finished all of God's just demands against us. And when you bring your puny works, they are an absolute insult to God. And that's why we've been seeing all the way through Romans up to this point that God either saves you on the basis of grace through faith, apart from anything that you can do, or he does not save you at all. 
And so Paul will write to the Ephesians in chapter 1 that we have redemption through his blood, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now one other truth about redemption, let's think about the message, the message of redemption. And I just want to introduce it to you because Paul is going to explain it in a full-blown way as we move through the epistle to the Romans. Again, just as justification is a legal term borrowed from the courtroom, the word redemption is a commercial term borrowed from the slave market. And so when you went into the slave market, if you were wealthy, you could buy, you could not only be assigned slaves, but if you wanted more, you could buy slaves. And Paul is going to talk about in Romans 6 through 8, how God with his precious blood came into the slave market of sin and he bought you. And because he bought you, you are under a new ownership. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you're not your own because you've been bought with a price. And so you are to live to glorify God in your body. God bought you. He redeemed you, not to free you to serve the world, the flesh and the devil. He freed you. He bought you so that you could serve Jesus Christ. So God redeemed us through the cross. Secondly, this morning, as we think about the ground of our justification, I want you to see that God was propitiated through the cross. The power of the cross is demonstrated not only through redemption, but through propitiation. Now, this is a very important word. The word redeemed is a word that describes what Christ did for man. When God redeemed us, he paid the price necessary such that he could justify us, such that he could declare us righteous. Redemption is man word. But I want you to see that this word propitiation is God word. It looks up to the Father. And so in verse 25, the perspective changes from what Jesus did when he died for us to what Jesus did when he satisfied the Father. He was propitiated. Look at verse 25. The first word is whom, that's a reference to the last two words of verse 24, Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly. Jesus Christ is the one whom God displayed publicly. That's another way of saying it was Jesus Christ who was put up there on the cross, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. Now, this is a very important word, and you need to understand it. Now, we don't use it today. It's even hard to pronounce sometimes. But if you looked it up in the dictionary, the gloss definition would be to appease or to satisfy wrath. And that's a good place to start most of the time when, when you're trying to determine the meaning of a biblical word. Go to the English dictionary because a good translation is asking what's the best word today in our language that reflects that word in the original. And it carries the idea of appeasing or satisfying wrath. I remember one politician being forced to resign and his word caught me because you don't usually hear people use the word propitiation. He said, I hope, and I quote, you're finally propitiated by my willingness to step down. He was in essence saying, I, I hope your anger is satisfied. As the Speaker of the House, he was saying, I, I hope your anger is satisfied and I, now you, you, know, you can let me go free, so to speak. For a copy of our study today from Romans 3.24, visit our website, searchthescriptures.org, and search for program ROM15 entitled, The Power of the Cross. You can also hear this and all of Pastor Brogy's messages on our Search the Scriptures app 
Available from the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. There's still time to sign up for the Search the Scriptures trip to Israel taking place in May of 2022. The Bible will come alive and in full color as Dr. Brogy leads a group of STS listeners through many of the places mentioned in the Bible. People who have participated in the past say this is a life-changing experience. And now that restrictions have loosened throughout the Middle East, you'll be able to sample and understand why God granted His most favored status on this country and its people. You have until February 11, 2022 to sign up and get all the details online at stsisraeltour.com. The Search the Scriptures trip to Israel is paid for exclusively by those choosing to participate. Tomorrow we continue our look at God's way of salvation. Join us then as we search the scriptures.